we are far past the point of wondering whether these allegations are true against the district attorney's office. The judge recused the entire office because of the demonstrated perjury committed by officers and district attorneys. Judge Goldpools, who is known to be an excellent judge, is fair and impartial. And when he found that those individuals had been committing perjury in his courtroom, I think he'd had enough. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Lawrence Coletti coming to you from Legal Talk Network headquarters in Denver, Colorado. I am the producer, and Bob and Craig are not able to join us today because of work conflicts, but since I'm also an attorney, we'll carry on with their tradition. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, online practice management for lawyers at www.goclio.com. In recent news, there's been media coverage of a jailhouse informant program in Orange County involving both the Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney's Office. Challengers of the program claim it has resulted in constitutional violations and the withholding of exculpatory evidence. In one case, it is alleged that an innocent man was put to death for a murder he did not commit. To further stoke the fires of debate, convicted murderers are being released without life sentences and an entire DA's office was recused from a murder trial with a confessed mass killer. Given that the allegations of wrongdoing date back to the 1980s, the potential impact on lives in the region could be immense. Here to discuss this issue, we have two guests. The first is Associate Dean for Research, Professor of Law, and Rain Senior Research Fellow, Alexander Nadapov from Loyola Law School, Los Angeles. She is an award-winning legal scholar and nationally recognized expert on criminal informants. She is the author of Snitching, Criminal Informants and the Erosion of American Justice, which won the 2010 ABA Silver Gavel Award. She has testified before the U.S. Congress and assisted numerous jurisdictions in drafting informant-related legislation. Welcome, Professor Nadapoff. Thanks so much for having me. And next, we have Mr. Rudolph Lowenstein, who comes to us by recommendation from the Orange County Public Defender's Office. Rudolph is a certified criminal law specialist who has been practicing in that area for over 30 years and is admitted to the United States District Court as well as the United States Supreme Court. He is a former deputy district attorney who is now defending clients in the very types of cases he used to prosecute. Welcome, Mr. Lowenstein. Thank you very much. Well, before we get started, I want to mention that we reached out to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, District Attorney's Office, and the Public Defender's Office, and we were politely turned down by all of them, but we did receive a recommendation from Mr. Lowenstein personally from Assistant Public Defender Scott Sanders, who's at the center of this controversy. So we wish to thank him and re-extend our invitation to the Public Defender's Office as well as the District Attorney's Office and Sheriff's Department. When the timing is right, we certainly wish to talk with all of you. So my first question is for both of you, and it's just for our listeners to get a gauge of your perspective on this issue. How do you feel about the use of jailhouse informants in general? Professor Nadapoff, let's start with you. So as I think this case illustrates for everyone, the use of jailhouse informants is a crucial public policy about which the American public knows very little and yet has a huge influence on our, on our criminal justice system. Criminal informants generally are a massive part of the way 
uh, American law does justice. It's the way we make cases and run investigations. It's the way we gain evidence. And first and foremost, most importantly, it's a way we make deals. It's a way we make deals with suspects and potential offenders. And it's really touches every aspect of the criminal justice system. Jailhouse informants are, are a particular kind of criminal informant. They happen to be incarcerated uh, when they offer up evidence to the government or uh, are sent in to, go, to gather evidence by the government about other targets. But they're part of this larger phenomenon that you really can't understand the American criminal justice system without taking a hard look at the way we use criminal informants. So jailhouse informants are enormously important. Uh, they're obviously, as the story demonstrates, an extraordinarily risky way of managing cases and gathering information. Uh, and, and in an ironic way, we're lucky that this debacle in Orange County has forced the country to take a harder look at them. Mr. Lowenstein. Yeah, thank you. I want to thank uh, Scott Sanders for uh, recommending me for this. What's happened in Orange County is that uh, through Scott's efforts in the public defender's office, he has spent the last approximately two years really researching this issue. He represents a uh, gentleman by the name of DeCry, who is uh, accused of being the largest mass murderer in Orange County history. And the use of a jailhouse informant as set up by the law enforcement in Orange County with the use of a recording device is is what set all this in motion. And, uh, you know, with regard to the specific question about why do prosecutors utilize these jailhouse informants, it's that prosecutors never have enough evidence, uh, and they like to uh, use jailhouse informants because they don't have enough evidence to convict without it. Usually, in my experience, it's not the icing on the cake of a strong uh, case. It's basically uh, where they have weak cases and they're trying to defeat a particular defense, such as maybe uh, uh, trying. these things involve confessions from defendants who are housed in the same area within the jail, and they're inherently unreliable. But the prosecutors use them anyway uh, because they're trying to gain enough evidence, usually, to secure that conviction and to make sure they win. Well, Professor Nadapoff, the the Messiah v. United States case establishes that government agents and their informants can't question charged defendants who have legal representation. So I was wondering if you could walk us through the logic in that case and then give us an example of both a legitimate and an illegitimate use of jailhouse informants. Sure. So let me preface my answer, uh, and we'll get to it in a minute. Just because something is technically legal in our criminal justice system doesn't mean it's a good idea. And to date, uh, we have barely regulated the use of criminal informants and jailhouse informants in particular, by which I mean the Supreme Court has given police and prosecutors wide berth to use and reward informants. Uh, States have, uh, again, until relatively recently, essentially taken a hands-off position, left it to the discretion of police and prosecutors. it turns out that the law in this arena is actually quite thin, and that's changing in states across the country. States are starting to consider more rigorous regulation of this risky practice. But the law that we currently have, uh, as you noted, it, part of it is embodied in the Messiah case. And the Messiah case holds essentially, that once a person has been charged with a crime, they have a right to counsel. And so you can't secretly interrogate them. 
uh, and you can't secretly interrogate them, in effect, by using an informant. And so the rule that that generates is that the government cannot, and the standard in, in the cases, deliberately elicit information from a defendant who's been charged and therefore has the right has the right to counsel by sticking an informant in their cell or putting a cooperator, you know, uh, to come to visit them in their house or their car. Uh, the, the government can't sneak around the right to counsel by using an informant. And in the Orange County case, what we saw is that the government flouted that rule, that they sent informants in and around charged defendants, meaning defendants who had the right to counsel, in effect to extract information and get information from them and secretly interrogate them by using informants. I should note that Orange County is not alone in this violation. Um, jurisdictions across the country have been found to violate this uh, very important and particular rule Los Angeles is uh, a particularly egregious violator in a debacle about 20 years ago. So Messiah uh, gives defendants who have been charged with crimes protections against jailhouse snitches. If you have not yet been charged with a crime, the Supreme Court holds that you don't have the same kinds of protections against informants because you don't have the right to counsel, and therefore, in the eyes of the law, essentially you're on your own. And so for defendants who have not been charged, it is not unconstitutional uh, for the government to send an informant into the cell, for example, to ask questions, as long as the defendant uh, doesn't feel coerced or threatened or pressured in some way uh, that might trigger, for example, the kinds of concerns we have in the Miranda case about uh, coerced confessions. So constitutional law does not provide much protection for the vast majority of defendants who have not formally been charged yet with a crime and therefore their Messiah Sixth Amendment rights have not kicked in. And that's why I say uh, to, to be a little bit careful about asking what the law is uh, and forgetting to ask uh, what should the law be or how should we be handling this very risky practice of sending incentivized criminals in to extract information. Uh, and again, many states have started to consider stronger rules uh, to protect defendants against informants, whether or not those defendants have been charged with a crime, precisely because the uh, threat of wrongful conviction and fabricated evidence is so strong, whether or not the defendant actually has a right to counsel yet and whether they've been charged. Well, I think that's a good segue into my next question. So, uh, Mr. Lowenstein, you know, if these allegations against Orange County Sheriff's Department and the district attorney's office turn out to be true, if... What specific rights of defendants have been violated? So I know there's some constitutional elements there, but uh, let's get into uh, let's get into brass tacks and specifics. Sure, and one thing I would add to uh, the professor's uh, uh, statement is that it's okay to be a listening post. So in Orange County, what they were doing specifically is they were putting represented defendants in a jail cell, and then they were. Uh, specifically targeting these uh, defendants by using known jailhouse snitches and known informants. And they were putting them in there not to be mere listening posts. In other words, just sit there, and if the guy wants to confess to you on his own with no prompting, no interrogation, well, then that is not uh, a violation of Messiah um, and his constitutional right to counsel. However, what they were doing was they were putting a known informant 
into a cell or a module inside the jail with specific instructions to interrogate the defendant uh, in an effort to get confessions and, and to obtain information that would then be used at trial. And that is clearly a violation of Messiah. It's a clear violation of his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Uh, and then, furthermore, what happened was that they were hiding this conduct and violating uh, Maryland versus Brady and the rights to discovery and portraying these individuals as being incidental contacts. It's just a coincidence that this informant happened to be placed in the jail cell. It's just a coincidence that they happened to be talking about the defendant's case. And coincidentally, the only reason the informant came forward was to become uh, because he was outraged by the conduct. And that was kind of the mantra uh, that they were given. Essentially, I think it was a script they were given in order to obtain these statements. And then when it's when this plan insertion is hidden and notes were hidden that were kept by the snitch, uh, then you're in a position where your uh, right to exculpatory evidence, your right to due process, um, your right to a fair trial all, are all being violated. And those are the allegations, and I think many of them have proven out uh, uh, in Orange County. Professor Nadapoff, I guess one of the features of these stories in Orange County is this uh, system. It's a secret records keeping system, or that's what's alleged. It's called TRED, T-R-E-D. And so I was wondering if you could uh, share with our audience, what is that? Should we worry about it? And if so, why? So there are two pieces to the TRED puzzle. And let me just back up for a second and reinforce something that Mr. Lowenstein said. Sure. We are far past the point of wondering whether these allegations are true against the district attorney's office. The judge recused the entire office because of the demonstrated perjury committed by officers and district attorneys. Uh, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky has called for a federal investigation. Al Jazeera secured secret tapes of uh, informants talking to sheriff's deputies and negotiating deals. Uh, which are all on the public record now. So one of the important things about this example is that we actually know what happened. We know that law enforcement officials were willing to lie under oath to a court as well as to defense attorneys. We know the extent of the uh, cover-up that the officers were willing to go through. So uh, this happens all over the country, unfortunately, but it's rare that we get such an in-depth glimpse of uh, what actually happened. And uh, we need to credit Mr. Sanders, Scott Sanders, who's the public defender on this case for tirelessly going after this information, which was extraordinarily difficult to get. The government threw up enormous roadblocks uh, against anybody finding this out. So we're in the expose part of the story already. We're, we're learning what actually happened. And Tread is just part of that story. At, at the beginning of the case, sheriff's deputies and district attorneys stated under oath on the stand that there were no records of these informants. The reason, as Mr. Lowenstein pointed out, the, the reason that's an important question is because if there were records of these informants, the government would be constitutionally obligated to turn them over under Brady versus Maryland. The government claimed we didn't keep records, therefore we didn't have to turn them over. It turned out that the Sheriff's Department was maintaining this uh, as you called it, a secret system of records called TRED, in which they were, in fact, keeping track of their informants and their extensive use in the jail. Uh, and so 
one piece that the Tread System reveals is just how the culture of secrecy surrounding informants works. The law enforcement either doesn't keep records at all, as happens in many jurisdictions, or if they do keep records, they keep them secretly. The sheriff's deputy said that they didn't, they thought it was more important to keep the records secret than it was to comply with the Constitution. Uh, and then the second is the willingness of these law enforcement agencies to violate the law, to protect that culture of secrecy. Um, not once, not twice, and it wasn't one bad apple, it wasn't one mistake, but over and over again, essentially is office policy. Well, that looks like a great place to take a quick break. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and with me today is Professor Alexander Nadapoff and Mr. Rudolph Lowenstein. And uh, we're continuing our discussion about Orange County's jailhouse informant program. But uh, before we get started on the second segment, I wanted to get both of your opinions about this new Texas bill that would end the use of jailhouse informants in death penalty cases. So last time we started with Professor Nadapoff, this time, Mr. Lowenstein, we'll start with you. Yeah, the interesting thing about the bill is that it recognizes the inherent unreliability of these jailhouse informants uh, and the fact they're powerfully driven to say whatever it takes to reap the reward they're looking for, and, and that usually is freedom or some kind of leniency. The thing I found odd about it is that it specifically applies only to death penalty cases and requires uh, that testimony from jailhouse informants uh, be excluded from evidence unless they're tape-recorded, and I'm little, I'm mystified as to how they're going to be able to get uh, tape-recorded statements from jailhouse informants and defendants unless uh, the prosecutors are involved, and then how they get past Messiah and the rights uh, uh, to due process of the defendants, I'm not sure. But if this passes, and if it does become law, it certainly uh, is a, a step in the right direction, but I'd like to see jailhouse informants banned in all cases of their inherent unreliability. I don't know why it wouldn't take effect immediately. It's uh, slated to potentially take effect in September of this year. So, yeah, I'm all in favor of that. Professor Nadapoff. The text bill is really important. Uh, It would ban the use of any compensated witness, which is really what an informant is. It's, It's a witness who's trying to work off their own liability or shorten their own sentence or get a benefit in exchange for information. And it would ban the use of such informants in death penalty cases. 
Texas has actually passed a number of informant uh, pieces of informant legislation. They have corroboration requirements for jailhouse snitches already. They have corroboration requirements for drug snitches, in part because there have been so many informant debacles in Texas with wrongful convictions and and mass arrests based on bad evidence that the issue has really come to a head there. I want to second uh, Mr. Lowenstein's point that there's no inherent difference in the reliability between an informant in a death penalty case and an informant in any other kind of case. They're all, in effect, compensated witnesses. They're working for a benefit uh, with massive incentives to fabricate. And because American law regulates them so lightly, and we confer such broad discretion on police and prosecutors to use them, uh, they continue to be very risky witnesses in any kind of case. There's a history, however, uh, in American justice reform to start with death penalty cases, because as the court has told us so many times, death is different. These are our most uh, serious cases. They, uh, they pose the greatest moral challenge. Uh, and of course, if we get it wrong, uh, the tragedies are, are, are so profound and irreversible. So I agree with Mr. Lowenstein. This is an excellent first step. Uh, we should have uh, restrictions and restraints and controls on informants in all kinds of cases. Uh, but it's appropriate that in death cases where we really shouldn't take these kinds of risks at all, uh, that we shouldn't use compensated criminal witnesses uh, in, in cases like this, it's a reflection of how seriously we take the capital process. Okay. Well, this next question is also for both of you. And so this was something that uh, rang out in my research, uh, pretty serious uh, and obviously got our attention. And uh, But recently, the Superior Court Judge uh, Thomas M. Guthels recused the entire Orange County District Attorney's Office from a mass murder case. And uh, what I wanted to do was have uh, one of you walk us through that and both comment on why this is significant. So I think this is a good question for Mr. Lowenstein. As to why Judge Goethels recused the entire Orange County District Attorney's Office, it's because he found that uh, there was a systematic misuse of informants within the Orange County jail system that the Orange County Sheriff's Department had a working arrangement with local law enforcement and, and including on their own where they were systematically and without disclosing it to the defense for years violating defendants' rights under Maryland Brady versus Maryland and then by refusing to tell anybody about this because it was secret uh, and then um, massive violations of Messiah and then when called to account by Scott Sanders, uh, the ironic thing is is that the DA's office representatives called his allegations scurrilous, which is an odd term, but, you know, impugning Mr. Sanders' character. And then it turned out that, in fact, upon further review and analysis, he was exactly right. And under the Orange County District Attorney's watch, they're the top law enforcement agency in Orange County. They're responsible for the actions of all these associated law enforcement agencies, including their own deputies and their own deputies and involved especially in the gang unit and then in the homicide, the capital homicide unit, uh, apparently knew, and I say apparently because I wasn't in the courtroom, but Judge Goethels found that they 
lied under oath. And in fact, he found them not to be credible and called them to task for it and decided that there was no way that uh, the Orange County DA's office could be impartial when their own deputies are being found to have lied under oath when questioned about the withholding of evidence in this area. So what he did was he said that the entire office is recused because I cannot find that the defendant in the decry case is going to be able to get a fair trial from these defendants. And they're appealing it, and the attorney general is investigating the Orange County DA's office, but they're appealing it on behalf of the DA. So it's kind of ironic that uh, the fox is watching the hen house here, but it's Judge Goldfuls, who is known to be an excellent judge, who I have known since we were both in the DA's office together here in Orange County, uh, is fair uh, and impartial. And when he found that those uh, individuals had been committing perjury in his courtroom, I think he'd had enough. He'd seen enough, and he refused the entire office. Professor Nadipoff, I um, wanted to adjust this uh, follow-up a little bit for you, and I want to tap into, obviously, your legal mind, but, but also just you as a citizen, as somebody that goes to work every day, you know, when you see a district attorney's office recused from a mass murder case, and you think about the administration of criminal justice and the perceptions that we must all have that law is basically fair and it's administered fairly, what, what do you think something like this, when it gets in the media, does to the public? Well, I, th- I think that the informant phenomenon challenges a lot of our assumptions and conceptions about how justice is done. People are always shocked when they learn that law enforcement relies on paid criminals to get information in weak cases. They're always shocked uh, that law enforcement bends the rules of the truth to use witnesses like this. Uh, They're always shocked that uh, law enforcement sometimes turns a blind eye to the crimes of its own informants, lets them continue to commit crimes or uh, even very serious crimes um, as they have infamously done. So in many ways, the informant deal between the government and criminal suspects turns the justice system on its head, just kind of turns everything upside down. And this is a you know great and terrible example of it. Now we have law enforcement who have become the lawbreakers. They're violating the Constitution. They're lying to the judge, all to preserve this habit, this culture of secrecy, this way of using and manipulating evidence. Uh, And it's another example of just how hard law enforcement has been willing to fight to keep this culture of secrecy alive. I think all across the country, in state after state, where citizens and legislators have seen these debacles, uh, when their sense of faith in uh, police and prosecutors has been shaken, when they see how uh, those offices or individuals are actually making decisions, And we are seeing change. We're seeing uh, lobbying for new laws, for new restrictions, because people now understand that the justice system doesn't work the way they thought it did. Mr. Lowenstein, I want to talk about a practice known as papering the judge. And so Section 170.6 of California's Code of Civil Procedure allows lawyers to make peremptory challenges to disqualify a judge that they deem prejudicial against their interests. And so from the period of 2011 to 2013, the district attorney's office did this six times. But more recently, from February 2014 to today, it's on record they've done it 57 times. And so, 
you know, this is a kind of a big deal, but I want to get your opinion. What's causing the recent frequency of the peremptory challenges in the district attorney's office to increase like this? I want to make it clear that it was that this is specifically directed at Judge Goldfels. The 57 times is very recent, and since the judgment issued by Judge Goldfels in his recusal ruling, so the six times previously in the years before just deals with, for some reason, the judge may have personal knowledge, the judge may have some issue, a particular DA may realize that this judge isn't a good judge for his case, so you paper the judge. What the DA's office is doing is what's called a blanket paper. A blanket paper of a judge is where everybody who's assigned to Judge Goldfell's department is challenging him for cause and using their one-time use of a disqualification to disqualify him. Um, and it's following the decry ruling where he recused the DA's office and he found that they were lying under oath. And the problem with it is, is that um, while they claim it's a singular decision by the DA who's assigned to each case, that just, that just defies credibility. It's an effort to, to intimidate Judge Bopels. It's an effort to intimidate the entire judiciary because what they're doing is putting Judge Goldfels out of business for hearing criminal cases. And they have that power. And when they exercise it in this way, it undermines the fairness in the system that I think uh, the professor was talking about. It causes a loss of confidence in the fairness of the system because the DA is telling Judge Goldfels and telling every other judge on the bench that if you rule against us, that if we don't like your ruling, we're coming after you and we'll put you out of business. And it's a clear form of intimidation, and it forces the judges to see if they have the moral courage to stand up to the DA, um, or are they going to follow their conscience in their rulings when they hear these cases and follow the facts and the law. And if they rule against the DA, they shouldn't be in a position where they're under the threat of the DA's office uh, filing a blanket paper against them, and that's exactly what's happening to Judge Goffels, uh, and it really shouldn't be tolerated by the judge. Um, all the judges should stand up against it, including the public. It, it's wrong. Professor Nanapoff, the, uh, the misuse of jailhouse informants has been credited to overturning trials and reducing sentences for self-confessed murderers, and so I'm wondering, for our lay audience who may not understand how it's possible for a self-confessed murderer to go free. Can you walk us through why this happens? Sure. It, it goes to the basic uh, architecture of how we use informants. An informant is a suspect or a criminal defendant who makes a deal with the government in exchange for the, uh, giving information or cooperation. They get a benefit. Typically, the benefit is leniency for their own crime. And I think... We haven't spent enough time really digging down into what this means. It means the government is saying to criminals, we'll forgive you. We will drop your cases. We'll let you walk. We'll give you shorter sentences. Uh, we will uh, sometimes turn a blind eye to crimes that you continue to commit while you're cooperating with us if you are sufficiently useful. And that's really the heart of the informant challenge. It's the risk. Uh, of cutting these deals with offenders. The risk, of course, that we get fabricated information because the temptation is so great when your own liberty is on the line to make stuff up. 
and the risk more generally to the integrity of the criminal justice system itself. Because instead of going after the bad guys, which is what our criminal system purports to do, it's essentially cutting a deal. It's creating a market for guilt and information that operates under the radar in a way that judges often have no idea about. The public uh, has very little understanding of. And it's what I meant before when I said that using informants kind of turns the system upside down. So as a result, we get very serious offenders who uh, are permitted to walk away. Perhaps the most infamous are, are the uh, mafia hitmen, Whitey Bulger and Stephen Flemmie in Boston, but there have been many, many other very serious offenders who have committed murder, kidnapping, racketeering, extortion, uh, drug dealing, while they're working for the government uh, because they provided um, such useful information. And we've seen in this case in Orange County that because the government was not willing to meet its constitutional obligations to disclose information, it dropped cases. It set people accused of murder or convicted of murder free early. The government in Orange County preferred to let accused murderers walk than disclose its own informant information gathering practices, which is really right through the looking glass. So, Mr. Lowenstein, you know, as these investigations go on, if these, these alleged violations by Orange County District Attorney's Office and the Sheriff's Department are proven true, there's been a long systemic abuse of constitutional rights, uh, the withholding of exculpatory evidence has also been reported. You know, what possible punishments are there for those involved? So the police officers, uh, the attorneys, uh, all the people that work in conjunction with this, even some of the jailhouse informants, what, what kind of possible punishments could there be? Well, there can be possible punishments for wide-ranging, but the, the stark reality of it is that there's very little likelihood that anybody is going to suffer much in the way of punishment or sanction. Obviously, you could have punishment for law enforcement. There would be prosecution for perjury, civil liability, loss of employment. Um, so far, we've had one um, sheriff's deputy who's refusing to testify and cooperate with uh, the DA's office and other prosecutions now because of his fear of being cross-examined on these issues and uh, fear of uh, being prosecuted for perjury. For the prosecutors involved, the question is, do they still have a job? Why do they still have a job? After being found to have committed perjury by the judge and who's listened to their testimony and looked at the documents, how is it possible they still have a job? They still have jobs. They could be sanctioned by the bar. So far, as far as I know, there's been no sanction by the bar. There's been no findings by the bar as a result of uh, Judge Gopal's ruling. It's a misuse of power, the failure to disclose evidence, lying to the court. Yet, as far as I can tell, none of the possible sanctions that have been widely circulated and, frankly, would be expected if a defense attorney had done what these prosecutors had done, I'm sure there would be a massive rush to sanction the lawyer, sanction the uh, the uh, defense lawyer. But, you know, it's a question of uh, fairness. And so far, nobody's lost their job. Nobody's faced any civil liber- you know, liability. Nobody's been in a position where they've been charged with perjury and no sanctions by the state bar. But all those things are possible. But in my opinion, no one has yet been called to account for the lies and deceit perpetrated on uh, the system and on these defendants. 
Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time for our program today, but uh, I want to thank both of our guests for joining us today. And I also wanted to ask you to uh, share some final thoughts uh, as we get into the closing here. Uh, Professor Nadapoff, let's, uh, let's start with you. Just that for people who are interested, there's a huge amount of uh, information, fantastic reporting on this story. The Orange County Register has done great work. Al Jazeera has done work. Slate, Dahlia Lithwick did a um, piece the other day. Uh, Dean Erwin Chermerinsky has written about this. There's just a huge amount of information. Uh, this is It's a story that's going national. The Washington Post, the New York Times started to pick it up. So I think uh, for those of you who are interested in seeing how this really works. I encourage you to take a deeper look. There's a lot of wonderful material out there, and I think it's going to teach us a lot about how the jail department system works, and it's going to uh, help us do better all across the country. And if our listeners wanted to follow with you, Professor Nadapoff, how can they reach you? I run a, an educational website. It's called snitching.org with information about this and, and similar cases. Uh, they can reach me through the website uh, or through Loyola Law School, Los Angeles. Mr. Lowenstein, final thoughts? I'm hoping that uh, what's going on in uh, Orange County really uh, does put a spotlight on this issue, and hopefully it'll it'll lead to reform. And within my own practice here in Orange County, I'm hoping that um, the prosecution really has learned their lesson, and I'm hoping that they'll there will be adjustments in the system, uh, and the use of these jailhouse informants will be banned and further restricted. Uh, and that's my hope. We'll see what happens. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you? Uh, they can visit my website. It is relcrimlaw.com, um, or they could email me at uh, rudy at relcrimlaw.com. My office number as well as 714-544-9844 if they really want to speak to me in depth about this. Thank you very much for having me, though. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.